Hey there, good day to you all. It is Captain Roger from the Grass Valley Corps of the Salvation Army, and I'm so glad that you are able to join us online for our worship and study time today. Grab your Bibles and flip with me to Acts chapter 12. We're going to start in the very last verse, but before we do that, grace and peace to each and every one of you. You might wonder why I keep telling you to grab your Bibles and, and pull them out when I'm going to just read you the scripture anyway. Well, you know what? Sometimes I may not read the words right, or sometimes the things I tell you or anyone who's preaching tells you might not match up with what the words in the book say. So get the book. Look it up for yourself. Now, I'm going to be using the New International Version 2011 edition today. Uh, it is a, uh, I think, mostly, anyway, accurate translation. All translations have their own little quirks and flaws, and you just need to be able to work with them. That's why uh, I recommend using more than one version of the Bible if you're studying. If you're just reading, find something that's comfortable for you to read, because in all the translations, even though the words might be different, the meaning behind them should still be the same. So, hopefully you've found Acts chapter 12 by now. If not, pause and pull it up. And then restart. Oh, man, it's too late. I just told you to pause. You're never going to hear me tell you to restart. All right, Acts 12 at verse 25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. All right, now who are all these people? We got Barnabas. Uh, it's not actually his name. His real name is Joseph. He is called Barnabas because the uh, word Barnabas means the son of encouragement. And uh, Joseph is uh, perpetually, constantly, always being encouraging to those around him. And so they've given him this nickname, Barnabas. Uh, Saul, on the other hand, he is a former uh persecutor of uh, the Christians, the people who followed Jesus, and he was their prosecutor as well as their persecutor. He was uh, leading the charge to round them up and uh, essentially beat that nonsense out of them. Um, and what he discovered is that it wasn't the people he was persecuting, it was Jesus himself. And once he realized that Jesus was exactly who he had claimed to be, Saul switched from being the uh, persecutor to becoming an advocate for following the way of Jesus. And John Mark, we heard about him just briefly last week. Uh, he is the son of Mary, who was a wealthy and influential woman in Antioch, which is a Gentile region where the word of God had taken root and was starting to spread through those who some others in the faith still weren't sure should be allowed to practice the faith. Their mission, these three men, their mission was to bring money donated by members of the church in Antioch and the surrounding areas to help the followers of Jesus who were or were about to be suffering from an intense famine. The uh, <laughs> pagan believers supporting the Jewish believers in their time of greatest need is essentially what that worked out to. Um, they were easing the way by following the way, as it were. Um, now what was happening really, it wasn't just like one group of people sending money to help out another group of people, although it was that it was one group of Jesus followers seeking unity with the other. They were seeking unity in the important things like loving your neighbor, even past the point of disagreement, because there were a lot of things these two groups disagreed about. 
And Barnabas and Saul went and they delivered the aid and they checked in with the apostles and the other elders in Jerusalem about the fact that the people of Antioch and dozens, if not hundreds more, from non-Jewish backgrounds were now becoming part of the followers of the way. And John Mark went with them and then he returned with them to Antioch. Which brings us to the next verse. Verse 1 from chapter 13. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who'd been brought up by Herod the Tet- I'm sorry, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And I'm going to stop for a second because uh, this is a very interesting collection of leaders. Luke is really highlighting the diversity and reach of the church as it grows. Now, biblical lists are often given in order of importance or uh, chronology, time, and Barnabas was the first among the leaders to come, and Saul was the last. So, kind of frames our list. And in between them, we have Simeon, called Niger, which is a nickname suggesting that he is dark-skinned. It literally means dark. Now, it's harder for us to maybe understand without a little help because we don't generally as Americans speak a lot of different languages. Um, but to Luke's audience, this would have been obvious. Simeon, uh, he was also either a Roman or he moved in Roman circles. And that's because that nickname Niger, it's in Latin. It's not in Greek or Aramaic. So he is specifically, uh, Luke is specifically pointing out that he is a Roman person. All right. Now, Lucius, next in the list, he was from Cyrene. That was a, a Greek city in North Africa. We know that folks from Cyrene made up a good part of the synagogue of the freedmen in Jerusalem. Do you remember them? They stoned Stephen. Later, they tried to kill Saul as well. So Luke mentioning a Cyrenian here, that's no small thing. He's trying to make a point that people are coming together under the banner of Jesus. And Menaean, he is said to have been raised with Herod Agrippa, the, the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded and who helped put Jesus on trial the day that he was executed. Yeah, that Herod. Now, Luke sometimes seems to have inside information about the Herods, and it's speculated that Menaean might be the source. He had the social standing, and he was an intimate friend of the family in addition to being a follower of the way. And, and then there was Saul. We've already talked about Barnabas and Saul. So uh, this was the face of the church in Antioch. These five men, they represented this broad spectrum of people and backgrounds, but they were all working as one towards a common goal because of Christ. They were together. They were one. They were in unity. And uh, you can see evidence of that in verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, a couple of things. These guys were worshiping together. They were praying together. They were focused together. And the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Now, I don't think there was like a voice in the middle of the room that spoke to all five of them at once. I think they each had that still, small voice inside of them make the same suggestion. So that one of them probably said, hey, I just had a thought. And the other one said, you know what, me too. And so did the others. And then 
they decided they needed to pray about it and make sure that they weren't all just crazy. And they did. And they still felt this conviction, this pull, this call of the Holy Spirit on on all of their lives, but particularly on Barnabas and Paul, because they were going to send them off. And then so they lay hands on them. Now, this is not ordination. They're not making them into uh, leaders in the church or or blessing them as missionaries or anything like that uh, because they didn't have to. They're just acknowledging that God's call was on these two. They weren't sending them out. They weren't making them into uh, new people or new jobs or anything. They were just saying, hey, God has called you two to go and we are going to send you because God has called. Kind of encouragement for their journey. So they're not sent by the church at Antioch. They were sent instead by God. Verse 4, the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and John was with them as their helper. So the port which served Antioch was uh, Seleucia. Uh, which was about 16 miles away. <coughs> Excuse me. And Seleucia was a hopping place. It had ships going in all directions. It was the uh, headquarters of the Roman fleet in that area. So I think it was like a giant naval base on one side of town and, and all this trade going through there. So they didn't have any trouble finding a ship that was going to haul them out. And Cyprus was and still is a large island in the eastern Mediterranean. Over the first 1,500 years of its inhabitation, uh, it had been owned by Egypt, and then the Phoenicians, the Greeks, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Ptolemites, and the Jews, and finally the Romans. And uh, we've heard this uh, place name before, Cyprus, because Barnabas had been born there. And he probably still had connections and family there to help support his team as they start to spread the word of Jesus. So they started in one of the largest cities on the island, Salamis. And I just love that name. It makes me hungry every time I say it. Salamis. Um, it had been the capital of Cyprus before the Romans had moved that capital into Paphos and placed a proconsul in charge over Cyprus. Now, we don't know exactly what it is that John did to assist, but the term being used to describe him as a helper tells us he was doing more than just running errands. He may have been doing some teaching or preaching with the others. We don't get any information about that because the next thing Luke really wants us to know about is something else. I'm going to say one more thing about John Mark, though. We hear about them praying and laying hands on Barnabas and Paul and uh, Saul, and that is because they just described the five leaders in the church, and they're sending out two of the leaders in the church. So the fact that other people went with them is, uh, A, not surprising. Um, think six guys went with Peter when he did his little uh, journey just to the next town. So they probably sent more than just John Mark, but the, the, you know, Luke only has so much space, so he's hitting the key characters. Um, and they probably prayed and laid hands on all of them, not just the two leaders, but they're all going out to carry the word of Jesus to the rest of the world. Now, um, let's go to verse 6, because they've reached Cyprus, and it says they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, 
an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elmas, I'm sorry, Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them, and he tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So, what's going on here in the middle of all these confusing names? Well, we've got Sergius Paulus. He's the guy in charge, the Roman leader for this state, this region. Um, he wants to hear about this Messiah that Barnabas and Saul were proclaiming. But one of his aides tried to stop them. This guy, Bar-Jesus, or Bar-Yeshua, or Bar-Yesos. Um, Sorry to throw all these different names at you. All it really means is the son of Joshua. Um, Luke notes that his name also means Elimus, which is a word that could refer to a type of grain. It was also a character in the Aeneid who is seen as running a race uh, against a pair of other characters. And I, I kind of like the thought of Luke using popular literature of his day to help link to uh, someone who is kind of the same because he's competing against these other guys. Um, but really, uh, Luke's probably just pointing out that like so many people at this time, this guy's known by more than one name. Um, now, what we do know about Bar-Jesus is that he is Jewish, he is a Magi, and that he is a false prophet. In fact, the word that Luke uses for Magi is one that could be used to describe like a, a quack doctor or something like that, a charlatan. It's like Luke is saying, you know, he's not a magi, he's a magi. You know, quotes around the title? You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, he's saying, like, he's a magi. This kind of magi, he's someone who claimed to divine the future by using necromantic rituals to speak to the dead. Possibly throwing in a little astrology, maybe some magic for good measure. None of those things were permitted under the law of Moses, if you were wondering. Apparently, Elimus was not terribly involved in the practices of his own Jewish faith. He'd picked up some of these practices from the surrounding culture. And he had used them to further himself um, in the, the world of power and politics. Now, we probably could have gathered that he was not real tight with his own faith by the way he was working so closely with the Roman authorities. After all, we've seen that kind of thing was not permitted of the Orthodox people of God. Accepting outsiders has been one of the charges that's been leveled against Jesus and his followers. How dare they? Now, this whole thing about Jesus and his people accepting everyone probably would not have been lost on the Magi. Barnabas represented a movement that was countercultural in every aspect, but which was gaining popularity in ways and places that the Jewish faith had never managed to go. And like most people who've manipulated their way into a position of power, Simeon was afraid. Simeon, oh my goodness. Elimus was afraid of new ideas, new people, and anything else that he didn't understand and control. So he's trying to prevent Barnabas's team from sharing Jesus with the proconsul. All right. Yeah, I know. I've thrown a whole bunch of names and stuff at you, but let's let's get to the meat of what's going on here. Verse nine. Then Saul, who was also called Paul. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. 
you're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. <laughs> Pretty cool, huh? Yeah. Ironically, God seems to have turned out my lights right as I got to this part. Now, the new international version that I have been using up uh, up here has taken a little poetic license with their interpretation. Like I said, all translations have uh, some quirks. And I'm not saying this is a bad translation. I'm just saying it could be better. Here is what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say when we stick a little closer to the original meaning. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Or let's even get a little more literal than that. That was the uh, uh, New Revised Version, New Revised Standard Version. Uh, so this is the Lexham English Bible. It says, Oh, you who are full of all deceit and of all unscrupulousness, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And that last line, that's the one in particular. I really, I, stop making the straight paths God has laid out crooked. Stop building barriers between people and God. Stop making them go out of their way. Stop keeping them from Jesus. We hear so many instructions on what we need to do to get to Jesus, don't we? Well, you need to change your ways. Well, you know what? Maybe you do need to change your ways, but you don't need to do that in order to follow Jesus. That is a detour off the path. You need to follow these steps to salvation. No, no, you need to follow Jesus. You need to say this prayer. You need to dress this way. You need to speak this way. You need to turn your back on those friends. You need to give this much money or time or whatever to the church. No, no, you don't. Those are all bends people have put in the road. The path to God goes from where you are right now, straight to God. Just follow Jesus. There is a straight path to Jesus for everyone. That is the point Luke keeps making. You don't have to be a Jew. You can be a Gentile. You don't have to convert before you can follow. You can just go with God. You don't have to work your way around or through the obstacles people put in your way. Just go. Now, I'm not saying that you might not learn you need to make some changes. I think we all probably have things we should work on, right? We may not agree on what those things are, but as long as we are both following Jesus, both letting the Spirit lead us the way Barnabas and Paul did, we will reach our destination. We may not all walk the same path, even when we're headed the same way, but it's not our job to follow each other. Our job is to follow Jesus. Ignore the crooked, stick to the straight and narrow. Ignore those flashy detours, stay on the path. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now some people, when they read this, they say, oh, that means the way is small, it's hidden, you need to work to be able to find it. But that's not what Jesus says. It's not what he is saying. Sure, he says only a few will find it. But just before this, he also said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Everyone who asks, everyone who seeks, everyone who knocks, there are no detours, there's only Jesus and you following him or not. Is that hard to believe? Well, sure, because we've been told we need to do this or that before we can follow him. The good news is that the word of God says that's not the case. Stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. It's incredible and it's simple. See Jesus, follow Jesus. And if you choose to blind yourself or others to Jesus, if you remember, uh, Saul found that having the truth revealed to him was a blinding experience. And the Holy Spirit's just share, shared exactly the same kind of experience with Elimus, hasn't it? Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And look at verse 12. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So by closing the eyes of the Magi, the eyes of the proconsul have been opened and he began to follow Jesus. No detours. He saw and he believed. So how about you? Can you bring yourself to turn away from all the crooked detours people have put in your way and just look to Jesus? Forget the seven steps or four steps or three steps to salvation, whatever those are. There's one step. Follow Jesus. All right. Do you need me to make that more complicated for you? Huh. Not today, child of Satan. The path to the Lord is straight. You got it? Great. Now that you got it, do it. Let me close us with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you that your road is straight. All the detours, all the obstacles, all the things people throw in our way to try to make life more complicated or make sure that we live up to their standards, none of those have anything to do with your path. Your path is simple. See Jesus follow Jesus. I'm going to stop right there. God, thank you for helping us to see Jesus. Help us to follow Jesus and ignore all the bells, whistles, colored lights, moving things, all the distractions that pull us away from following Jesus. Help us follow him to get to you. Thank you, God because you make that possible for each and every one of us when we're willing. Help us to have willing hearts, willing spirits. And as we go out of here, help us to lead others to look to you, to look to Jesus and follow him, not to follow me, to follow you. We pray this all in Jesus name. Amen. Hey, um, last quick thing. Um, look at verse nine for just a moment. Something changed there. You see it? As we've seen from so many others, it isn't unusual for people to have two or sometimes more names. They they used their name from their home language in situations related to those people and places, and they use their worldly name in places outside of their home area. So Saul, when he's in a primarily Jewish context, he used his Hebrew name, Saul, but uh, it was, by the way, the name of the first king of Israel, so his parents had high expectations for him. Um, but when he was operating in a mostly Gentile context, he used the Roman form of his name. Paul. And here in verse 9, Luke makes the change visible for us. And this is where the story of Acts shifts from one thing to another.
It's been a story of the change of the people of God from being people of the old covenant to people of this new covenant that was established by Jesus. But now it's the story of the good news of Jesus reaching out into the world. It's becoming about the people who've been outside being invited in, and it's going to be an exciting ride. So buckle up as we move into the rest of the book of Acts and into the rest of our lives as followers of the way of Jesus, because what we read here should direct our steps in the world and lead us to call others to come follow Christ. Amen? Amen. Hey, whoever you are, wherever you are, wherever you think you've gotten yourself into or wherever you think you're going, remember... You have nothing to fear because God is already there. Go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you this week. I will see you next time.